Welcome to CropSense, presented by North Carolina Cooperative Extension. I'm Jacob Morgan, a field crops agent with North Carolina Cooperative Extension. Today we have Dr. Dominic Rizek and Dr. Anders Huseth. Thank you for joining us today, guys. Thanks for having us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. So I guess let's start off with today we're going to talk about cotton insects mainly. Today is today is April 28th and uh, cotton is probably going to be going in the ground if it's not already in the ground. So I guess the first first thing we need to talk about with cotton insects is thrips. Well, I know Anders can speak a lot to uh, seed treatment efficacy and, and whatnot, but I, when we start talking about thrips, I'd really encourage growers and consultants and anybody out there involved with cotton to check out the, the thrips infestation predictor for cotton, because there's a lot of great information that went into making that tool. It's very robust. What you can do with the tool is you select your given geography. You can type in GPS coordinates in there. You can type in a, a city name and address, and it'll tell you for any given planting date what the risk for thrips is on that planting date. So you can tell if you're planting, say, on you know May 5th at such and such location, if you're in a low, medium, or high risk for thrips. And what that lets you do is to take advantage of the system prior to planting and to maybe include an insecticide in furrow uh, when you're in a high thrips risk window, or maybe to leave that insecticide out if you're not, or maybe to know that you need to go back and, and do a follow-up spray. So I'd really encourage folks to check that tool out if they're not already using it. Yeah, just to follow on Dominic's comment, the thrips infestation predictor is really interesting because it accounts not only for the growth of the cotton plant itself on those planting dates, but also the probability of a thrips flight occurring at the same time the cotton's susceptible between emergence and about four true leaves. So it's a really interesting approach to be able to understand crop susceptibility. And I think Dominic's point about following up on crops that might have been planted into a really susceptible window, you know, when the thrips numbers can be really high is a, is a good point because sometimes when we're trying to save sprays, knowing that it's going to be a high cost season, we wouldn't necessarily want to have to go back and make applications on cotton crops that, you know, have a good likelihood of growing out of the thrips risk window and not needing an acephate spray over the top. All right. So something that, that has been advertised very heavily the past year or two is the thrive on trait. My understanding is that has some activity on thrips, even though it may not be commercially available. Can, uh, can we talk about Thrive On and then also how that transitioned into plant bugs through into the season? I'm going to toss that one to Anders because he has the leading research program anywhere on Thrive On Cotton for thrips. So we're very fortunate to have him here at NC State. Well, thanks, Dominic. So we've been doing a lot of work in trying to understand how this product works. It's a BT toxin similar to what we have for lepidopterin or moth pests, caterpillar pests um, later in the season, but it's got a unique spectrum of activity where it attacks or it has efficacy against thrips as well as plant bugs later in the season. We've been looking at it a lot to try to understand how it works on thrips. And what we found is that this product tends to reduce the number of egg laying events that the female thrips choose to make on the Thrive On cotton. So what's that translate into really just a reduction in the populations that we see on average on Thrive On seedlings. So this is similar to what we've documented for neonicotinoid seed treatments where there's reduced egg laying events. However, what we do find is 
that the larvae that do make it through on the Thrive on Cotton tend to develop. So that's a little bit of a nuance that's a challenge. However, in the field, this technology has looked really good for thrips in the northeastern part of the cotton belt. Yeah, so springboarding off what he said, you know, when you look at Thrive on in the field, you're going to see thrips on it, but it's going to be reduced numbers and you are not going to see nearly the damage you'd see on non-Thrive on cotton. It seems to be a, a very good standalone product from what we can tell. All right, what about efficacy on plant bugs? That's a little bit more nuanced. It definitely does have some efficacy for plant bugs. Seems to kind of reduce feeding events. Yeah, we see fewer nymphs on it. Not a whole lot there for adults. We really have to look at Thrive On across the season when we look at it. I can plant a Thrive On plot next to a non-Thrive On plot, and I may have a hard time telling the difference in a single sampling event, which one is which, because there's there are plant bugs all over both of them. But when I use the same thresholds we've been advertising time after time, when I come out at the end of the season, I'll usually have maybe one or two fewer sprays on that Thrive On cotton, and I may even have more yield in the picker at the end of the season. So definitely not the standalone product it is for thrips for, for plant bugs, but it is providing a, an additional benefit. What I'm most excited about for Thrive On for plant bugs in North Carolina is for those areas where we have plant bugs, but don't know we have plant bugs. So Dr. Husef led a, an effort over the past couple of years sampling across the state. And we found our highest plant bug numbers in the southeastern part of the state, which to us was a surprise because we tend to think of plant bugs as a northeastern problem. I'll let him speculate some on this as well, but I think maybe the reason we found so many plant bugs down there is because we're not treating for plant bugs down there. So I think Thrive On is going to provide a, a pretty big advantage for those growers who uh, may have plant bug issues and don't know they have it. And in addition, there's times when we just can't get in the field in a timely fashion, and I think it'll provide us a benefit uh, there as well. Yeah, thanks, Dominic. I think that our study really did show that, you know, in some of these places where we don't expect plant bugs to be present, we did find them at near economic threshold levels. And these were just, you know, snapshots of the season in which we sampled at squaring and then sampled again at bloom stage. And so for growers that typically haven't had plant bug issues, you might not be scouting as intensively for that pest. And, and so what this technology could do is provide a uniform protection from plant bugs under some of these low to moderate to high density areas. Uh, much like the neonic seed treatments give us for thrips, it's a really uniform protection that's uh, expressed throughout the season in the case of Thrive On. Uh, so it could have a lot of benefits in some of these less traditional plant bug areas as far as managing these, these problematic, but really sporadic pests. All right. And as you said, sporadic pest, I think is the sporadic is the key word there. So we want to be out looking for these things. So I guess one touch on a little bit of the scouting method, kind of what folks should be looking for and two, what a threshold would be for plant bugs. I'll let Andrews talk about the field distribution related scouting because that study he mentioned also looked at that as well. And uh, the results were eye-opening to those who are not following our recommendations to sample across the field. But we recommend uh, essentially to breaking it up into two different scouting methods based on the time you are in the growing season. Uh, Pre-flowering, we recommend that growers and scouts and consultants look at two things. The first is what's going on the, on the plant itself. We need to look at square retention. 
it's very important that we hold on to at least 80% of those squares pre-bloom because those squares are oftentimes going to turn into the bowls that are going to contribute quite a bit to yield. We don't need to hold on to more than 80%, but we do need to hold on to 80%. The other thing we need to be do is to be using the sweep net for scouting. And that sweep net is good because it is very good at capturing adults, not so great at capturing nymphs, but that's okay because prior to bloom, we have a lot of adults migrating into the field. They haven't yet uh, reproduced too much. And so we're kind of taking advantage of that, that sweep net's positive ability to, to capture those adults. So when we hit eight plant bugs in hundred sweeps combined with dropping below 80% square retention, that would trigger a spray. It's important that we have those things in tandem because sometimes we can have really high plant bug numbers, but not see the drop in square retention. Sometimes we can have the drop in square retention and you know it might be due to something environmental. That's a little bit more rare. Once we hit bloom, we then recommend that folks switch to the drop cloth. And the drop cloth is great because although it's not good for sampling adults, it's very good for sampling nymphs. We recommend a black drop cloth because those nymphs show up really readily against that, that black background. And on a two and a half foot drop cloth, both sides of the row, that's five foot a row on that five foot sample, if they hit two to three nymph plant bugs per sweep, uh, that, that would trigger a spray. So that's the thresholds that we, that we recommend. I think one thing, you know, just to follow on Dominic's comments of sampling, you know, one thing we learned from this study, which it included 120 commercial cotton fields from Alabama through Southeastern Virginia. And we asked the question of, you know, like how many samples did you need in a field? And, and we found like, that these insects are so sporadic in fields that you need to sample probably more intensively across the entire field than we had expected, meaning you need to have about eight stops with a sweep net or about 23 stops with a drop cloth, which is a little bit more than we recommend now. And so that sampling precision is really important for picking up those pockets of plant bugs in the field, which means effort has to be you know, at the field level. The other question we asked is, can we use basically a signal in one field, you know, sample as a proxy for a field down the road. And we asked that question with some rather elaborate statistics, but what we found is the geographic level of most importance was the field level, meaning that you can't necessarily sample one field and assume that plant bugs are the same in the field that's adjacent or just down the road. And I think that that's really important for remembering our scouting procedures is that scouting every field for these insects is really important because they're driven by factors outside the crop, you know, prior cropping history, whether or not you had soybeans in the landscape, other crops or non-crop areas that are all contributing these insects as a pump. And they can be distributed unevenly even within the field. And that's that's super important to remember when we're getting out there and scouting. And you know, one stop outside the uh, the truck and one sample of a hundred sweeps probably will miss some of the economic thresholds that we we're looking for at the field level. All right. So next up, I guess in the growing season would be flowering and bowl set. I guess the first thing that for the last 10 or 15 years, we hadn't really worried too much about, and that seems to be coming something that we need to be paying attention to is bowl worms. Can y'all talk a little bit about bowl worms and, and what to look for and where to find them and kind of maybe what, what traded cotton would be most likely to have them? Yeah, I guess before we talk about bollworms, actually the, the way that we manage our insects prior to bollworms is going to have an influence on, on bollworms. 
And we rolled out this winter and we will uh, provide more information during the growing season, uh, sort of a tiered system based on expected sprays for plant bugs in the system. Because we realized that a spray recommendation for the guy I heard about up in Pasquotain County that sprayed eight or nine times for plant bugs is probably not going to look the same as a guy that sprays one time. But what those things all should have in common is trying to put what I'll call softer on beneficial chemicals up earlier in the season. And that's going to really help us avoid killing a lot of those natural enemies that may control things like ballworm. So we'll provide some information on, on that in the season. Uh, I, I don't want to go into that into detail now, but I think it's important that we really keep those natural enemies in the system to avoid flaring up bollworms uh, later in the season. Yeah, just to follow on that. So we've been looking a lot collaboratively, Dominic, myself, uh, Sally Taylor in Virginia, trying to ask the question of which of the products that we have available have the biggest impacts on natural enemies. And so for several years, we've been evaluating common plant bug and bollworm insecticides and just asking the question, how does it change the natural enemy communities that we depend on to really manage bollworms and, and through egg predation and larval predation. And what we found is that, you know, several of the chemistries that we use are soft in nature, even softer than we would have expected, but the old standards like acephate used at bloom stage really do reduce uh, natural enemy communities. That isn't a surprise. Entomologists have reported the broad spectrum impacts of, of organophosphates like acephate for, for years, but we reconfirmed it in this system. And I think that's really important, especially when we have two gene cotton uh, that might depend a little bit more on biological control, but also three gene cotton where we're trying to preserve the efficacy of the third gene, the VIP, the VIP traits. We need every piece of information or every piece of biological control we can have uh, to really suppress bullworm populations, to try to limit the amount of resistance selection that we get against that really crucial toxin. And I, I know that's like an area that we've really emphasized, but now with the natural enemy piece, everything we can do to not disrupt those populations is an added benefit for resistance management in bullworm. And that's a long-term view of thinking about cotton pest management over maybe a decade. Yeah, so Anders mentioned that VIP toxin that's kind of a direct answer to your question, Jacob. Most of these new varieties are going to have that toxin in it. If you think about those trade names like Bolgard 3, Twin Link Plus, and Wide Strike 3, they're providing excellent bollworm control. There are going to be situations where we're going to have to spray that cotton for bollworms, especially as we get later in the season. Think about bollworm populations are higher, maybe environmental conditions are such that some of those toxin levels are going down. And uh, we've in the past recommended a, a larval-based threshold, and it's still a good threshold, but we have rolled out a new damage bowl threshold. It's a little lower than what they're recommending in other parts of the cotton belt. Ours is 4%. There's a 6%, uh, but we do have some pretty good information that, that backs up the use of that 4% damage bowl threshold. So we'd recommend using one of those two thresholds for those newer varieties. If there's any of the older varieties out there, say something like 1646, that may be Bulgard 2, or there may be some twin link out there. We'd really recommend that folks spray early with something that has chloranthinilopearl in there. Uh, trade names would be something like Besiege, XRL, Prevathon, or Vanticore. If you've got that and, and you want to put it out early, that's going to be your, your best bang for the butt. Later on in the season, if you're using those damage bowls, those, those larval, larval thresholds, those are still the chemicals of choice to use. They're very effective, very long residual for bollworm. 
So stink bugs will be next or last insect we should really be paying attention to in cotton. Will a warm winter that we've had cause an increase in stink bugs or is that going to be negligible? And secondly, just talk about stink bugs in cotton, a scouting for them, what we're looking for, and uh, then maybe some control methods. Well, in terms of your warm winter, you know I'm going to say it depends, but it, it really does depend. And the reason for that is we have a species complex out there in cotton. The brown stink bug, which is a native stink bug, I don't think this warm winter is going to make it any worse or any better. I think we're, you know, the numbers are going to be equivalent whether or not we have a warm winter. Now, something like the southern green stink bug, which also feeds on cotton, I think we are seeing increased populations from warm winters. This is an introduced stink bug. It's been here a long time. We think it's originally from Africa, but it really gets knocked back by cold winters. I remember a few winters ago, we got to, uh, you know, negative four degrees in my house. That knocked back southern green stink bug. Uh, we've had several warm winters in a row. We've been seeing increased populations as a result. So I think we could see more southern green stink bugs in cotton where southern green stink bugs are an issue. I mainly see browns and greens, which is different than a southern green and cotton. So uh, I think in most places, stink bugs are going to be about the same. The good news is if you're fighting plant bugs, you're probably going to be killing stink bugs later in the season. If you're not, you may need to make a dedicated stink bug spray. I think most growers are, are pretty familiar with our threshold based on internal injury. Uh, we've been, we've preached that for a long time. Uh, but we do encourage uh, the use to some of these heavier hitting, hitting insecticides later in the season. Bifenthrin is very effective for brown stink bugs. It'll pick up all the rest as well. Uh, you may pick up a little bit more efficacy by mixing something like orthine in there. Uh, Bidrin is also an effective tool. I do want to talk a little bit about stink bugs and other crops. And for those stink bugs and other crops, I do want to mention I will also be recommending bifenthrin. And uh, I don't know, Anders, if you want to mention the maybe the danger of me recommending bifenthrin in corn, cotton, soybeans, but it's not really a comfortable situation we're in right now. Yeah, it's kind of the situation we've got. And, you know, the materials that are efficacious are, you know, only those that are registered. And bifenthrin's one of them. One thing that we've been concerned about between Dr. Reisig's program and mine is looking for resistance in brown stink bugs in particular. So we've seen these sort of increasing issues and repeated use patterns necessitated by available products. And so we're out there looking for brown stink bugs to uh, conduct resistance bioassays throughout the state this summer. Uh, so if, it, if folks have any issues with, with brown stink bugs and they think it's a control issue, we'd love to sample them and you know get out there and, and really get a pulse check on where we are for resistance for these insects because it is a major concern just based on the number of times throughout the season that we have to use bifenthrin. I guess many, many years of research have gone into the decision aid for stink bug thresholds. Uh, there used to be cards that were available with a little hole cut out in them. My understanding is on the app, now there's an app that you can use for that. Uh, and that it's a dynamic threshold. So depending on what week of bloom it is, that threshold goes goes down and then comes back up towards the end of the season. Yeah, that, that's correct. So just to mention real quickly, the critical time to control stink bugs is in the third, fourth, and fifth week of bloom. And you're right. If you download that app, you'll see it's 20% internal damage bowls. And uh, yeah, that app is essentially just a, a rehash of the card that we, that, that we had at one time. 
Is there anything else you think we need to discuss? Well, I'd really like to keep on the stink bug thread. Dr. Huseth and I are working with some students that are working on stink bugs in, in both soybeans and corn, and Dr. Van's a part of that too, uh, because we're concerned that although we're doing a very good job of managing our stink bugs in cotton, we could be doing a better job in some of our other, of, of our other crops. Uh, we've noticed increasing issues with stink bugs in corn, not just in North Carolina, but throughout the Southeast. Uh, we'd really encourage growers to make sure that they're treating each field individually. And the reason for that is just like in cotton, stink bug numbers are incredibly variable field to field, even within the field. And the really critical time you want to disrupt stink bug feeding is that time prior to tasseling when it's forming that primary ear. That's when it's feeding on those cells that are dividing, that are going to turn into the, the rest of the cob and the kernels and it's causing the shape in ears that banana ear as a result. So that's really a one to two week susceptibility period. So we'd really encourage growers to consider hiring a scout if they're not, if they're in a stink bug heavy area. Uh, we're seeing similar issues with soybeans. Uh, we know that the critical time to spray stink bugs in soybeans is going to be times like R4 and R5, but they can damage soybeans even into R6. We did a, some extensive sampling this winter fairly random in fields, we found levels of stink bugs that were above threshold in fields that were R5 and R6. So those growers were taken on damage. And it really highlighted the point to us that growers need to be scouting their soybeans throughout the season. It's not an easy thing to do because we have a wide range of maturity groups. We have a wide range of planning dates. And so that just means a lot of time scouting. We were doing this scouting in areas where vegetables are grown and sweet potatoes are an issue and tobacco is grown. So we know that there's other concerns that growers have. So again, they may want to consider hiring a consultant and scout to help them out with that season-wide scouting if they're serious about uh, preventing yield loss from stink bugs. So cotton seems to be one of the ones, the crops that we have a variety of insect pests throughout the season. And I think the take home is you need to be out there scouting or you need to have somebody out there scouting for you throughout the season. Yeah, there's been a lot of work done by you two, by the people that came before you as far as thresholds, and there's always going to be insects out there. Scorched earth is not the way to go. Use these thresholds, and all that is available in the cotton information books. And so if you are out there and you're interested in what the thresholds are or scouting methods, that sort of thing, the cotton information books are available through your local cooperative extension agent. So I would recommend you call them if you have questions, get you a book. You can sit it in the front dash of your truck, and that way you can have it available to look at and to reference throughout the season. So I certainly appreciate you guys' time today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, this is great. Thanks so much, Jacob. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, uh, tell a friend, and leave a five-star review. And as always, thanks for listening to CropSense. Because if it isn't making money, it isn't making sense.